Hello, Gail. So glad you could join me. How are you? Great. Thank you so much. And thank you for the opportunity to be here, Key. I'm really looking forward to our conversation. Sure thing. So am I. You know, Gail, it's not often that I meet fundraisers who have a real sweet spot in the corporate fundraising space. So it's really my treat to be able to talk to you and learn and learn with the good people listening about you and your company, Bauer and Company Consulting LLC. Thanks so much for joining us. Oh, thank you. This is going to be a fun, fun discussion. Yeah, so let's dive in. Tell us, me and the, and the good people listening, as I affectionately refer to them, a little note and fun fact about yourself. Okay, well, many people know that before I got into the work I'm doing now as a consultant, that I produced very large-scale, multi-stage music festivals. What many people don't know is that I... Before, as a kid, I actually had a little bit of a musical background. I always listened to music. I, we always had music on in our family. But I played the piano from sixth grade to 12th grade, mostly because my mother insisted. And eventually, when you do something for very long, you can't, you know, you can't do it out of rebelliousness. You have to start to own it a little bit. And so I started to realize that I wasn't sure if I could ever have a career as a performer, and that didn't really interest me so much. But I saw a film, and I don't even remember which one, and I remember the score of the film really knocking me out. And I thought, huh, I love film, I love music, maybe that's the direction. So uh, I went to this uh, arts camp where you pick a major and a minor area of, of interest, my major was instrumental music. My minor was creative writing. And it was in that four-week session uh, that I realized, oh my gosh, I am never going to be as good as these other kids. And more importantly, that's not a put down. I wasn't interested in getting that good, but I loved the writing. Cut to the future. Then I worked producing these large-scale music festivals, many in Philadelphia, uh, the New Orleans Jazz and Heritage Festival, Essence Music Festival, now called the Essence Festival, Newport Jazz, Newport Folk, many others. We produced the largest free public event of both of President Clinton's inaugurations. So here I was in the music world, using my writing skills, selling corporate sponsorship, and uh, you know, doing a lot of marketing work, a lot of writing. And so what I learned in hindsight that maybe will inspire some of the good people listening is that sometimes you don't really know where your career is going, but when you turn around and look back, you do bring a lot of interconnected skills and talent to your work. So it's always really important to find work that you love and that you're really passionate about. Second, I learned that rainmakers are super valuable to an organization. So all the fundraisers listening to your show um, should feel really good about themselves and the important work that they're doing and that passion that you have for the mission of your organization is going to carry you so much farther. So I did have a career in music. It just wasn't the one that I visualized as a, as a teenager. That is really incredible stuff. So I got to digest a little bit of what you said and react here. So what I'm hearing is you have quite or have quite the 
creative side, which which is interesting to me. I'm a Pisces, and I don't know how many good people listening are Pisces, or if you know much about Pisces, but we tend to be, um, you know, have that creative side, right? Um, and whether it's in arts, um, music, etc. Mine being in writing, right, having a background in journalism, and I'm really, really intrigued by the fact that you found a way to interweave, like you say, some of your passions and interests into, um, you know, spaces that led you to fundraising, because it's, that's, that's really, really interesting. Yeah. Yeah, I think, I think. I think you have to really find what you're really interested in, what you want to be doing. I mean, look, we work day in and day out. And if we're not having fun doing it, if we're not bringing our talents to it, our gifts to it, then it's a long slog to the finish line, right? (laughs) I'm telling you. And then on top of that, you named a couple of festivals because the good people listening, the ones that follow me on social media know a sister loves a good music festival. I've done Essence. Newport, Richmond. It's like, you know, during the eye of the pandemic, while I was missing everything else, like, because I was bald when we went into the pandemic. So I was missing my barber and, you know, my nail tech and my family, but I was also missing those jazz festivals. I wanted to see where Frankie Beverly and Mays, you know, was going to be. And summer just didn't seem quite right without going to a music festival. So that's good stuff. Thank you for sharing. Yeah, thank you. So tell the good people listening a little bit about Bauer and Company Consulting LLC. Sure. So my company um, is, I'm a revenue strategist. That's why organizations hire me. And many organizations, nonprofit organizations and associations have a really big problem when it comes to generating revenue. For nonprofits uh, and associations, they're often too dependent on single forms of revenue. For nonprofits, it's usually philanthropy. It's usually, you know, grants or major donors. Uh, And for uh, associations, it's often... Uh, members dues. And some of these forms of revenue can feel like they're based somewhat on whim. So, you know, a foundation can suddenly change their strategy and an organization's revenue can just vanish. And so what I do is teach clients how to generate more reliable forms of earned revenue. So I don't really think of myself as a fundraiser per se, I mean, granted earned revenue are, you know, that revenue is their funds. Um, But I work on a different, you know, end of the scale of, of nonprofit revenue. And so I would never tell an organization to abandon their philanthropic revenue or an association to abandon their members dues, uh, but to expand the revenue so that there's a little cushion. And by becoming powerhouses at generating earned revenue, organizations can become more self-sufficient. Clients have doubled, tripled, and quadrupled their revenue within a year, and that's just the first year. You know, Yale, my experience has been working with 
nonprofit organizations and even in the association world that you're absolutely right, that diversity in the mix, that diversity of the revenue streams makes a world of a difference. And when I've seen those organizations thrive, you're absolutely right. They had revenue streams and, you know, earn income or membership dues, right? They mm-hmm. had uh, perhaps some government funding. And in a lot of cases, uh, organizations that I've worked with didn't have quite as robust uh, government public grants revenue pipeline, but they did in fact have individual giving. They had robust charitable gifts, right? Via individual giving, philanthropies, whether they're private foundations, community foundations, and corporations, when they weren't so reliant on one strategy or one stream, you know, I found that this mix, this blend all worked really, really well together. Right, right. Because because it allows the organization to have more unrestricted revenue coming in, which gives them a different level of comfort. They can stretch their wings a little bit. They can pay those bills that aren't going to be sexy to a foundation. And they can also invest in their organization's growth and expand staff and, you know, play around with innovation and, you know, explore ways that they can create new programs or new lines of revenue. So it can really make a big difference. Sometimes organizations are operating right to the bone uh, in terms of their their contributed or philanthropic revenue. And it can be, it can cause so much stress for leaders. Tell me about it. I have been there and you're absolutely right. It can be as simple as a foundation, just having a shift in a priority or even a corporation for that matter. I mean, let's look at the last couple of years in the pandemic and in the alleged, I refer to it as an alleged gracious reckoning because it depends on who you ask whether you know they believe there was a racial reckoning or not. There's a lot of us who don't necessarily. So I refer to it as such. We saw companies and institutional philanthropies alike codifying racial equity or racial justice priorities that had never done that before, right? Right. Right. Biggest example I can think of is the Ford Foundation. Mm. When we heard from the president, um, Darren came out and said, listen, you know, um, we moving forward being the Ford Foundation are going to prioritize racial justice and funding organizations run by people of color. Mm-hmm. We'd not been so deliberate about emphatically stating that prior to now, but this is the horse we're riding in on and riding out on into the sunset, right? Mm-hmm. And you're absolutely right. So an organization that's not so resource rich, that's really um, relying on those anchoring foundations can find themselves in quite a quandary in in just a blink of an eye. And it could be something as simple as, 
you know, a, a, a family foundations, um, leadership or trustees taking interest in some other priority and, and making that pivot in a moment's notice. So yeah, this is good stuff you're talking here. Yeah, another example, I think these examples are right on target. Um, another example that, uh, depending on when your show airs, uh, and so for listeners, make sure you check the date on this. Uh, when we, if when we had the recession, the Great Recession back in two thousand and eight, a lot of uh, a lot of foundations updated their strategies because they wanted to focus on. Uh, organizations addressing uh, issues experienced by the most, in, you know, the most fragile among us. And that was a great strategy, but it was very devastating for a lot of other organizations. So there has been talk for at least four or five, six months that we may go into an, a recession. We're still coming out of the pandemic. We're still dealing with inflation and lots of other change. Uh, and there, there are lots of things changing in our culture all the time. So fundraisers need to keep an eye out for that and make sure you're staying ahead of where the market is going so that you can kind of shift on a dime. But yeah, diversifying the revenue is, is also a really important approach as well. Yes, fundraisers, good people listening. You heard the lady. You want to <laughs> follow the money and follow the trends. You heard it here. You might not have heard it here first, but you definitely heard it here from one of the leading strategists. So strategist you are, right? And and I could call you, you know, a corporate partnership strategist, uh, but you're a strategist in so many other ways. Like you pointed out, earned revenue um, sources and so forth. But for the good people listening, I had the pleasure of attending a workshop that you facilitated that was all about ways nonprofits can forge partnerships with corporations. And as I pointed out in the intro, you know, Gail is sharing a goodie or two out of her um, bag of tricks with the good people listening. So you can count on me to share um, those attachments in the show notes and, you know, how you can access them. But in any event, I wanted to have you to take a moment and share some of the tools, nonprofits, those interested in looking at building strategic alliances with corporations specifically, what sorts of tactics should they have in their toolbox? Right. Great question. And, uh, I want to just put a little um, a little umbrella of context on this first. So in my experience working with nonprofit organizations, hundreds of nonprofit organizations that I've worked with and thousands more that have attended uh, workshops and presentations that I've made, many, many, many nonprofit organizations start their journey with corporate revenue by creating quote unquote, gold, silver, and bronze corporate sponsorship packages. And these are an easier way, a labor, you know, a labor, a non-labor intensive way of getting involved with the corporate sector. However, it doesn't really give you all the tools that you need to have in your toolbox, as you mentioned. So 
what I recommend my, so what I want uh, listeners to think about is imagine a continuum going from left to right. Okay. And along this continuum, you have nine, 10 or so different ways that you can be working with the corporate sector on the left-hand side are those ways that are more philanthropic in nature. And on the right-hand side are those ways that are more fees for service. And so I would put corporate sponsorship closer to the right-hand side, whereas the gold, silver, bronze approach, which is more often like a gift or a donation, goes more towards the left, not at the extreme ends, either one, but more towards those directions. So on the left-hand side, you have corporate giving, you have corporate grants, you have um, employee giving and volunteerism and lots of ways that organizations contribute either dollars or in-kind materials or in-kind service via uh, their board leadership or their volunteerism. And then towards the on the far right is fees for services. It's when you exchange value that your organization has for a fee that an org- that a corporation pays for. And then in the middle, uh, you have some different opportunities that sometimes border on either side. So you have cause marketing right in the middle where the purchase of a corporation's product or service triggers a donation for your nonprofit organization. So a really great example that everybody probably will know is uh, when the Susan G. Komen Foundation partnered with many corporations around the pink ribbons to generate dollars for breast cancer research, which has done so much for women um, all around the world. And um, there are many, many examples of this that are that are really great and very creative. So that's more philanthropic, but corporations really like it because it's very strategic and promotional. Corporate sponsorship is actually um, a marketing vehicle that corporations use to have face-to-face experiences with their audiences. So at these large festivals that I produced, corporations could set up and and plan ways that they could interact with the, the festival goers and they the festival goers could for example uh, if it was a car sponsor get in the car and touch all the doodads I, I worked with Mercedes for many years at the Newport Jazz Festival and people would take pictures of their friends sitting in a Mercedes Benz and then they would get out of the car and look at the the price of the vehicle and what it included. And sometimes they would do the almost unthinkable, which is that they would go talk to the car salesperson. Hello. Here they are at a festival. <laughs> and so sometimes they would, you know, these people would then eventually go test drive the car and, and make a purchase. So that's how those work work a little bit uh, in a little bit of detail. Um, they, the, you, your organization may have an event that has potential uh, that another corporation or even a small business, depending on where you live, if you're in a smaller town, you may have an event uh, that attracts a lot of people in your community. And there could be businesses, large and small, that want to have, you know, that want to be there and be in front of the guests at your event. uh, And that's where you can create some really interesting opportunities for um for them and for your for your audience so that the event meets your goals as well as the 
corporation's goals as well as uh, providing extra value for your festival goers or your conference attendees or whatever. So anyway, so all of those, so that kind of comprises this bigger toolbox. And the reason why this is important is if you're just doing one thing, i.e. the gold, silver, bronze, you're missing a lot of other opportunities. And if you have more tools in your toolbox, then you can talk to many different uh partners within a corporation. And if you really understand what you have to offer, you might have a lot of value to offer different people within the organization for one opportunity. So um, so it's really important to really understand your value and be very strategic about where you can take that in the corporation. I agree. Yes. And amen. Amen. Right. So why? Good people listening, I get really, really excited when I'm talking to my counterparts here. This is like manna from heaven to me, you know, being able to talk to someone that really just gets this stuff, right? Here's the takeaway that I get from what you're saying, and it resembles my lived experience as someone who's done a lot of successful corporate fundraising. Like you mentioned, you know, those gold, bronze, and silvers, yeah, those are cool, right? My experience has been a lot of times organizations, and I've been guilty of this very early in my career, can be really short-sighted in terms of what we are offering, right? What our offer is to corporate partners and when I think about that short-sightedness, I do really think that what you're saying is very accurate in that you've got to really know your value. Right. You've got to know your constituency. You've got to know, you know, what will jive with them. You've got to have like some mutual interest here, right? And in that mutual interest, that nexus between your organization and what it's proposing to do. And that audience that that corporation wants to engage with, and that's the difference between just doing a gold, silver, bronze, offering you know branding recognition via a banner or monitor or what have you, right? I found that when you're able to pair those bronze, silver, and other gold with like some really targeted engagement. Like you say, when you're able to innovate, when you're able to partner with Mercedes and pull up, you know, pull out the, the Maybach bins and have folks sitting in there taking selfies. And I'm telling you, I would have been all over that. Gail, I would have been all over it. And they would have said, hmm, she's just going to come take pictures and not talk to the salesperson. Absolutely not. I don't have the money for this, but thanks for the selfie and the photo. I sure looked good. And I appreciated that opportunity, right? Right. <laughs> right. But it's that engagement. It's that opportunity to engage with the consumer. It's those speaking engagements at conferences, that opportunity for, let's say, um, a corporate talent acquisitions leader facilitating a keynote address 
before an audience of prime talent. You know, having the ability to get in front of that audience and share the corporate value proposition and what their, um, you know, acquisitional goal is over the next five years and why they want to engage and hire and who those hires need to look like and feel like. And it's those engagements that make the difference between that very transactional $2,500 $5,000 gift versus that six-figure gift. You're you know, exactly right. Donation or that seven-figure donation, right? You're exactly right. And, you know, another thing that in terms of transaction, uh, that's a, a term, you know, a lot of times organizations talk to me about the fact that they just feel like their program is so transactional. And if you, do, you know, if you lift up the curtain about what transactional means, it also means that they don't really have a relationship. And so if you don't really have a relationship with the corporation because you're just you know, emailing um, a, a, a letter that has gold, silver, bronze, blah, 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 and an order form, like you're the L.L. Bean catalog, you know, um, you don't really have a relationship. So therefore you don't really know what they want to accomplish. And you could walk down your street or in, you know, throughout your community, drive around your community and see, you know, five different banks. And every one of those banks has a different strategy. They're in a different life cycle of their business. Some banks are trying to, you know, kind of hippify their bank. Other banks are, you know, really invested in technology. Others are really focused on, you know, wealth management. So these are all very different strategies. They all have different audiences and different customer bases and different ways that they're marketing. So if you don't really understand that because you haven't had a conversation, you are leaving money on the table. And I don't want that to happen for anyone. Absolutely. And I'm going to, and I'm going to say something, Gail, and I'm certain you'll agree when you're doing, or I'm going to say building instead of doing, when you're building these corporate strategic alliances, it's been my lived experience that I've worked with multiple stakeholders, right? Right. Not just the people in the foundation, um, sometimes, sometimes, yeah, you know, the relationship is managed with the foundation lead, but for those bigger partnerships, the ones that most organizations feel are worth their weight in gold and want those six figure and seven and eight figure partnerships, multi-year strategic partnerships, I'm in calls, I'm in presentations, discussions, I'm presenting to the foundation lead, right? Or the the CSR, global corporate responsibility professional, right? But I'm also interfacing with the, um, someone in marketing and comms, right? Right. Because guess what? As part of this strategic alliance, there's gonna be some earned media via a joint press statement, right? or a corporate video about company X's volunteer engagement or the employee, the corporate employee engagement we pulled off at the middle school in Southeast DC, right? Mm -hmm. There may even be a DE&I 
lead, a chief diversity officer as part of that conversation or a head of social impact. So you're right, not being so deliberate about establishing those relationships is really selling your organization short. You absolutely should be engaging these leaders. You can find them on their uh, corporate websites. You can look them up on LinkedIn. I don't care if you have to email people, DM people via LinkedIn and ask, Listen, I do a fair amount of engagement on LinkedIn, and even when I don't know exactly who I need to be talking to, I don't have any shame about reaching out to someone that's inside of the foundation or inside strategic communications and saying, hey, could use a little help getting through to the foundation, folks. Can you assist? <laughs> and, it, and it's worked. <laughs> that's great so you know I, we're giving you good tricks of the trades here good people listening and i hope that fills your cup what gail shared and i concur you don't want to leave money on the table think in terms of what your value add is and what the value proposition is for that company and and don't be afraid to ideate you know and innovate with that corporate partner you'd be surprised by what you can build yeah you're absolutely right and that's how you also uh you know expand the the investment that they're making because you're pulling from all these different departments if your opportunity fulfills multiple opportunities. So what you just talked about with you know the philanthropy department, with the marketing department, with DE&I, you're driving goals that, that um, originate in several different departments and therefore several different budgets are working together. And therefore you have a, an opportunity to assign a bigger fee or you know depending on whether it's philanthropic or a fee, uh, you could ask for a, a higher number. And also because the corporation has infinitely more uh, marketing power and, you know, leverage, you are able to leverage their, you know, their skills and their talent and the heft that they bring from a marketing perspective. So it's just good, good, good all, all around. Um, but yeah, you have to get really creative and you have to understand your value and just start to know the terrain a little bit more. So I, I could talk about this topic forever. So <laughs> I love, I get really excited about this stuff, like the nutty professor. So Gail, I've got a provocative question for you. I know, as you know, and good people listening, I know, you know, you know, it's some good woke people listening right now. Um, we're aware that there have been and continue to be corporations that have perpetuated harm on people and communities of color. We know this. For instance, those corporations driving the prison industrial complex, right? Mm -hmm. My question for you is this, for those agencies that find themselves in a rock and a hard place, meaning they want to diversify their funding. 
They've got corporate industry in their backyard, right? But they're reluctant to partner with corporations with whom they believe are engaged in more performative, theatrical philanthropy. What advice would you offer those organizations that are that are really on the fence here in challenge? Right. Well, I think that is a super important question that every organization needs to be asking. And um, let me dig into the why, why that's so important, first of all, um, besides the fact that as the fundraiser, you feel really conflicted. Your organization needs revenue and you see this as an opportunity, but it doesn't feel right. And you should trust that instinct because we are operating at a time when full transparency is required because the technologies of social media has shifted so much that anyone can turn their camera literally and figuratively on your organization. And so organizations need to operate with a set of principles so that you are in alignment with your own values. And so the way that I would answer that question is when I'm working with a client, I take them through a process of identifying a prospect list. So again, I don't work in the philanthropy side of this, which I'll, I'll address that in a second. I work more on the corporate sponsorship side of this. And um, so I, there's a couple things. One is I help a client think about uh, the prospective companies that they would want to partner with and who they wouldn't want to partner with. And the companies that you want to partner with are companies that also want to reach your audience. So I'm going to give you another diagram to imagine. So um, think about a Venn diagram, three overlapping circles. And each of these circles represents the following. One is your organization. Number two is the audience's if it's a corporate sponsorship, it's your audiences. So it's the festival goers, your conference attendees, your gala attendees, uh, whatever the event is. Maybe it's a training seminar, the people coming to this training event. Um, and the third circle is the corporate sponsor themselves. If you have a good fit where all three goals are met, then you're going to have a, a sponsorship that has a good chance of being successful. However, if you have a spot, if you're considering a sponsor like the prison industrial complex corporation and um, giving a donation or sponsoring something would really only be good for them in terms of their image and your pocket, but be really negative for your organization and negative for your audience, that is not going to be a good fit because you're going to get a lot of um, you're going to get a lot of, uh, you know, flack back from your community and it's going to undermine your integrity. Now that said, no, I, I, and I think that my fundraising colleagues would probably concur on the other, you know, on the other side of my philanthropy to um, fees earn, earned income continuum that I mentioned earlier on the philanthropic side. I think you also want to develop these collaborations with companies that are really a good fit. Now, I have worked with clients. I, I'm not sure that I can see necessarily an upside on the prison industrial complex. Um, I would have to know a lot more to be able to find something. But I did work with an environmental organization years ago 
that um, protects certain of our environmental laws. And one of the ways that they do that is they sue corporations that are in flagrant violation of these laws, because it's sometimes the only way that we can get corporations to make change or they, you know, or they also, they sometimes sue, you know, government um, entities for the same thing. So they were a little dubious about having corporate sponsors for a couple of the events or festivals that they were operating. Um, particularly, so so what we did was go through a process where we thought about the companies and the industry sectors where there would be a good fit, and there were many, many of them. And then we also identified those where there was not a good fit. So in this case, um, you know, petroleum and fuel was not going to be a good fit. Automotive, they were conflicted about. And here's how we solved that issue. And I'm not saying that this would work for prison industrial complex corporations, but it could work for others that you might maybe on the fence about. We carved out a space where hybrid vehicles that were more environmentally friendly to this organization's mission was in alignment with my client's goals. So therefore they carved out the sponsorship only for the hybrid vehicles that this automotive company sold. So that's a way that you can do things. And one more point that I'd like to suggest too is that as you in any anyone who's in business development, you know that you have to do a little bit of educating. And so educating clients about performative philanthropy, and I'm not saying go in there and, you know, raise a ruckus, but if they come to you, it's perfectly normal and, um, and encouraged to share why you're concerned and to, to help educate them. And who knows, that could be another way that ultimately, I'm not saying you should turn this into a line of revenue or a program, but you're fulfilling your mission if you're um, talking to these companies about how what they're doing is injurious to the audiences that you serve. Yes, I love that. I love that. And I have seen, <laughs> I've seen <laughs> exemplars of, you know, how that can go right just like you have it and how it could go wrong, um, how it can go right. I mean, I'm from the Oakland Bay area. Um, there is a petroleum corporation, won't say their name, um, you know, in the Bay area. And one city in particular was always putting their dukes up, you know, um, representatives from that city, nonprofits from that city, Understandably so, due to past environmental injustices, right, to that community. We're talking about a predominantly black and brown community, and there was evidence of environmental injustice. So right. folks constantly had their dukes up and were in a posture, you know, like death to this corporation. And that corporation had to take that. Um, you know, they couldn't be like, oh, you know, how dare you say that? I mean, it was like, no, there had to be some conversations, some facilitated conversations over time. And that corporation had to take those knocks on the chin and listen to um, community members talk about the harms and, 
eventually there was some repair or, or restoration, I would say, um, of relationships that had been really deteriorated between, you know, nonprofits in that community and, and so forth. There was some degree of amelioration, right? Um, mm -hmm. And there were some ways that that company was able to in some ways remediate, and I don't want to suggest that I'm just drinking the Kool-Aid and saying, oh, you know, they made everything perfect. But there were some ways that that company was able to demonstrate itself to be a good neighbor and partner invested in some of the long-term imperatives that were important to that community, like educating Black and Brown young people and providing scholarships and supporting pathways out of poverty and otherwise. But it would not have, it's not for Kia to say, right? But whether or not those um, discussions, those facilitated dialogues wouldn't have taken place. But I do believe it's when the community really felt the need to kind of lean in and engage with that company. And be honest, this is the problem we have. This is where the harm is. And this is no secret to you. And this is why we have this posturing with you. Right. What are you going to do about it? What are you prepared to do about it? Right. Right. I think now more than any time in my lifetime, I think more and more, not every corporation, but more and more corporations and people are open to that feedback, that input, that education and making change. Is it going to happen overnight? No. Do I want it to happen overnight? Yes. But it's going to require all of us educating, pushing, teaching and helping to make that change. So for fundraisers, you know, that's not the road to wealth <laughs> because it's going to take way too long. Um, but, uh, and, and, you know, as you said too, it's not the right approach in every circumstance, but it can, you know, it can be a, a big help. You know, there was recent information from the Edelman Trust Barometer in 2022 that uh, nonprofits and businesses need to help uh, bridge the divisiveness by creating you know, more of a social fabric, by building trust in our communities. And I take that one step further by suggesting that these collaborations between nonprofits and corporations can do even more work. And so I think that's a good example of that. And sometimes you have to take you know, the, the tact of a discussion like you're talking about that, uh, and I'm sure there were protests before there were actual- Oh, what? Yes. yes. And sometimes, <laughs> sometimes there have to be lawsuits like on my client side. Yes, many. Yes. <laughs> All of the above, right? And I'm yes. not laughing because it's funny. I mean, I'm, I'm laughing because yeah, this is real. Right. This is real. It can be nasty, long and brutish. You know, it's not always the cute photos with a big, you know, corporate check presentation. No, there's a lot that, you know, can go right behind the scenes of this stuff or they can go wrong. Right. Exactly. Yes. 
This is good stuff. Oh my goodness. I'm so encouraged by this conversation. Good people listening. I hope you have your notes handy, your pen twerking and getting <laughs> these good tidbits from Gail, my friend here. So Gail, I want to get into the final line of questioning, formerly known as the bonus question round. I'm referring to it as now for the culture. And in the for the culture round, we like to have a little fun, get a little personal, get in your business a wee bit. Are you ready? I'm ready. All right, yeah, we're going to go down memory lane a bit. And because we love hip hop and rap on the Black Fundraisers podcast, I would like to hear from you. What's the first rap or hip hop song you heard that grabbed you and why? All right. That's a great question. <laughs> I'm going to just caveat and say that I am more of, well, not more of, I grew up in the era of Motown and R&B and that's where my heart is. And so I think one of the, one of the, the song that, um, that at first comes up when you ask me that question is it's, I'm going to go old school. So don't laugh, but bust a move. <laughs> and I'll I'll tell you a funny little story about that too. I love that song. I think it's so much fun. Yes. It's so it the video is great. It's fun to dance to. It's just a it's just a funny, fun song. And it makes me really happy every time I hear it. And it's been, you know, forever. But here's another little fun fact. So I remember um talking to a really good friend of mine. We had been out of touch for a while, just, you know, how life goes like that sometimes. And we were talking and I, I was telling her about my new partner, um, boyfriend at the time, whose name was Barry. And I said, yeah, it's really funny because before Barry, I was dating a guy named Harry. And before that was a guy named Gary. And you know exactly <laughs> the line she broke out into. <laughs> so... Oh, I love it. Bust a move. I had forgotten the artist's name, but yeah, just bust a move. Oh, oh, yes, (laughs) MC Red. Yes, that was the jam back in the day. Now, (laughs) if you remember, like I remember, we were dating ourselves now, but yeah, that was a good one. I love that song. Yeah, it's timeless. It's a timeless song. It's still just as fun now as then. It sure is. Well, Gail, I want to thank you for spending some time with us on the Black Fundraisers podcast. You have filled my cup. Like I said, I don't very often meet people that can just really drill down on the corporate strategy. And so this was really, really fun. Yes. Thank you so much, Kia. This was a blast. And I hope um, all your listeners get a lot out of what we talked about today. I could keep going on and on forever. So I hope they got a lot out of it. Well, we're going to have you back and we'll talk about more tactical strategies. So good people 